Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Greetings, I'm Trisha Cuffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today uh, I have a special guest for you, a returning guest. His name is Robert Schroff, and his co-author is Stephen Melnick. The book is Developing Sustainable Supply Chains to Drive Value. Uh, hi, Robert. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Trisha. Thanks for having me again. Really excited to be on and be able to talk to you and hopefully get some really interesting information out to your listeners. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, let's start with, uh, tell me about yourself and uh, what school are you at? What's your um, MBA program like? Sure. I am in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at Duquesne University spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. So phonetically, that's a tough one for people to tackle with. Um, the program I'm involved in, I was brought into about 12 years ago to kick off uh, MBA and Sustainable Business Practices program. And ever since that time, we've been ranked in one of the top MBA and sustainability programs globally, beating out schools like Harvard, MIT, NYU, Stanford, Cornell, University of Michigan, and the list goes on. And a real part of what we do is actual live consulting projects with our students and teams with area companies. We've done almost 200 projects to date with large multinational companies, small, medium enterprises, whole countries of access to help, actually help them. And every project we do involves sustainability in some way. And no two projects have been the same. So I'm incredibly fortunate to be in a job where I can engage both industry and practitioners on one side of this and students on the other and have them kind of come together for my research and my interests. So in that capacity, I am the Marin Chair of Global Competitiveness within that program. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was always seen as the Rust Belt of the United States for so long, but really we're a green, innovative place with lots of professionals here that are changing the world in terms of buildings and green buildings, in terms of sustainability and the, um, artificial intelligence, all kinds of things with um, automation. Autonomous driving is actually here within the city and other things really come together at a great time to be in the space and to be doing this kind of work. I am also 
a um, collection editor for Business Expert Press. And the books I'm talking about today in terms of sustainable supply chain management are published within that um, BEP framework. And in this capacity as a collection editor, I'm the environmental and social sustainability editor for them. So if any of your listeners also have ideas or proposals for short books on sustainability, I'd love for them to send them my way and they can find me online. Um, my email address is s-r-o-u-f-e-r at duq.edu. They can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, ResearchGate for my articles that I publish and also Google Scholar. Oh, excellent. Uh, and uh, since Steve couldn't be here today, could you uh, tell me just a little bit about your co-author for this book? Yeah, Steve is um, <clears throat> fantastic supply chain management faculty member and professional at Michigan State University, who's kind of splitting his time now between Australia and the United States. And in that capacity, he couldn't make it today. But uh, most of his work over time has transcended multiple topics as he's, I'm not going to say for how long he's been doing this, because it's multiple decades. Um, but he has been a leader in the field of sustainable supply chain management and also supply chains in general in publishing scholarly work over the past number of decades that have been impactful in the area. Oh, excellent. So we have two experts here. Um, so let's start with my first question always is, uh, what was your motivation for writing this? Uh, it's a two-volume book. Mm -hmm. Well, um, there's just so much going on in the world to try to keep up with it. It's always been tough. But when I want to focus on some things, my research tends to focus on sustainability and performance measurement, environmental management systems, and sustainable supply chain management, and then more recently, um, high-performance buildings. And in many ways, I think these are not separate. They're all really interrelated and tied together. Supply chains are the things that link manufacturers. They're also the things that enable service providers. They're what help connect our economy in multiple systems upon systems around the world. And I've always been intrigued by how things are made and then how it gets to us. If you think about Amazon and other places where most people want to get something within 48 hours now, there's a whole supply chain behind that that's been wrapped around the world typically. And I'm amazed and enthralled by what it takes to create something and then to get it to a customer, the right time, the right quantity, the right price, and the right quality level. Well, since this is, uh, we, we cross all categories here at the NBN, but since I'm in particular on the architecture one, um, how can supply chains, how does that affect uh, architecture, urban design, and uh, a landscape architecture? Yeah, if we go back in time, right, in terms of how this country being the United States was developed for vehicles primarily, right? So road infrastructure was built, vehicles took off, and we were able to do things that not only at one point in time helped the government in case there was going to be a, a cold war or a nuclear war and systems were available in terms of roads to move things that would help them. But they're also the things that move people. And then we got to experience urban sprawl. People were in density areas or dense areas in cities, they were instead sprawling out and creating new neighborhoods as far as the roads could take them. So roads have been a way in which we've actually moved out our, our footprint, especially our environmental footprint. It's also changed the way in which we build buildings. You know, we built, um, or we, I'll say PNC Bank here in Pittsburgh built a skyscraper downtown that's considered one of the greenest skyscrapers in the world. And in doing this, you know, they didn't have to build that building anymore. Many people are working from home. We have a different kind of work mode now with people working all around the world in shared services, but instead they chose to put a building downtown and to make a point of it being a green building. And whenever we put in buildings into cities, there's already building codes written in, in terms of the number of parking spaces we have per number of people we think are going to be down there. 
And sometimes it's in some kind of crazy, you know, seven to one ratio. We put in more parking than we do people just to accommodate all the cars that we think are coming. And in that sense, transportation has impacted the buildings, the building structures, what they sit on top of, parking ramps. And those spaces in the future, if they go away or morph into something else's systems change for transportation and supply chains for ourselves, those spaces may become new opportunities for architects and others to rethink how they can become green spaces, how they can become regenerative spaces, and how we can link systems like transportation to other things like food and rethink how we actually live in urban environments and better connect to suburban environments. Uh, yeah, it's, it's all uh, business sustainability, architecture, the whole thing works together. So uh, let me start with my first question. Um, so why are supply chains important uh, to the trends of, in, of integrating you know, more sustainability into business practices? Yeah, so <clears throat> I probably have to start right by unpacking the concept. So to define what is a supply chain to begin with, it is really the sum of a firm's customer relationships, order fulfillment, and supplier relationship processes. They're part of interconnected linkages among the suppliers of these services, the materials that are physical, right? We can actually put them in our hands and information and the customers of the firm's services or products. So these things are usually bundled together. Supply chain managers are then the people at various levels in an organization who are responsible for managing that supply chain, the demand, working with other functions within the business to understand that demand, both within and across other business organizations. So there is a new collaborative opportunity for these supply chain managers and all business professionals to really think about and include a growing number of sustainability professionals that are out there to work together on new and dynamic business opportunities that have typically been overlooked in the past and that are much more strategic nowadays. So with that kind of context for what is the supply chain, there's been a huge growth in a focus on sustainable development and the transition to a more sustainable society. All definitions of sustainable development require that we, all of us as decision makers, when we open up our wallets and purchase something or pull out a credit card or use our smartphones, and that we see the world as a system and a system that connects space, time, and socio-ecological resources. So what does this mean for a supply chain? Well, Prior definitions of this and how it's been operationalized recognize the evolution of sustainable supply chains as purposefully integrating the functions of purchasing and logistics while putting more attention on the green attributes of processes with a focus on environmental performance. And this has been exploding now to go beyond just you know waste and pollution and impacts on the environment. So while this repositioning of the professionals was a step in the right direction, it really didn't go far enough just to put a green label on things. Instead, we need to recognize the more dynamic systems in which businesses and customers all operate. So for the purposes of this two-book series, um, we built off of this to say that sustainable supply chain management involves systems thinking and the integration of this. It's a call to action to supply chain management that must include not just the financial numbers that they've had in the past, but it also now needs to include environmental and social performance. So these then sustainable supply chain management practices include stakeholder engagement, materiality, product and process design, life cycle assessment, which some shortened to LCA for its acronym, material selection and sourcing, 
manufacturing processes, waste, transportation of final products and services to customers, as well as end-of-life management of them. Do they either go to a landfill? Can they be taken back into a closed-loop circular economy and be made into something again? So an important new element of this in terms of sustainable supply chains is the integration of systems thinking and a holistic approach to the analysis and focusing on the way that that systems constituent parts are interrelated and how systems work over time within the context of larger systems. You know, nothing independent or operates independently. So by including and starting with a systems kind of overview and understanding, we can better define success, align and enable strategic planning while assessing multiple actions to look at as an analysis that will support what goes behind what we're going to choose to do with limited resources. And there's great standards and tools to help us do this. And this approach to sustainable supply chain management and a framework for strategic sustainable development can enable any organization to recognize new sustainability opportunities as we transition to this more sustainable society in the future. Yeah, uh, you're, when you're talking, you know, systems thinking, et cetera, it's uh, urban design and, and the needs of businesses. And, you know, supply chains is just uh, just really urban design and uh, moving things around. And I, don't know, I just had a lot of thoughts with that, too. You parking lots that are half half empty all the time, yeah. um, except for Christmas when everybody's there for the Thanksgiving Day sales. Otherwise, well, tougher for, <laughs> yeah, if you think about that in terms of the malls that we've built, right? These box yeah. stores and retails that are you know clustered together and that have been there for decades that are now becoming more and more vacant. And what are these things going to be turned into? So there are um, some that are talking about how one of the largest owner of parking lots in the world is actually a cloud company. And what they've been doing is getting these parking lots because they're positioning them as places where autonomous vehicles will be pulling through those parking lots in the future. And the buildings that they're next to are actually going to be places where we take food from suburban environments and do food prep and, and somehow package these things. And autonomous vehicles can drive by, pick these up, and either deliver it to your home if it's prepared food already for a meal, or if it's pre-prepared food for a whole week or some other time period or to do your grocery shopping. So there's companies that are already out there thinking about how to turn over these older spaces and connect them through supply chains with the use of new technology that's coming and some that already exists, really, with autonomous vehicles, and then provide Re, you know, a way for us to get real resources being food quickly so that it doesn't spoil because on average food travels about 1,500 miles to get to our plates and we end up still wasting about 40% of it. So, yeah, there's so much going on in the world right now that it's so hard to keep up with. And it's really, really interesting for me to see supply chains in the center of a lot of this. Well, well that's a, a good note for the next question. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what have we learned or what did you learn about sustainable supply chains uh, during this time? Yeah, it's interesting. This has kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit since the beginning of this, right, in terms of COVID. But just getting things delivered to your home when it first started, all of a sudden people have to leave a box sit for three days. You know, they're wearing gloves. We can't touch this. The pandemic was a real shock to the system, and I think an opportunity for us to look at this not as a problem, but instead to turn this around and think about what kind of a society and what kind of supply chains and what kind of systems do we want to have in a post-COVID-19 environment. So this also, when this happened, raised questions as to where are the real risks in our supply chains? 
no one realized probably, I should say no one, many people didn't realize how much of our stuff is made somewhere else in the world and how long it takes to get to us in terms of weeks. You know, we're happy that Amazon can do this within 48 hours for a whole bunch of stuff. But all of a sudden, that really changed. So it was nothing that we could have predicted. And what we found is that some companies are much better prepared than others. And not due to the nature of their business, their location, or what their balance sheet looked like, but because they'd already addressed or assessed what areas of the business were most material to them. So materiality has been a term that's really important in growing in business in terms of understanding dimensions of the business that are most material or critical for an organization to include. And it's topics that have a direct or indirect impact on an enterprise's ability to create and preserve value. That value can go beyond a dollar and be economic-based. It should also be environmental and social value. So firms have been assessing this and trying to see where they fit within society at large and where some of the material risks were. So it's firm-specific. The nice thing is that there are organizations out there like the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board and the materiality maps that can help any company within any industry understand what's most important for them to focus on so they can better be prepared for environmental and social shocks to their system by focusing on those types of material things. So I wrote a little blog post about some of this a while back when it started calling, calling it the mask of materiality has been lifted and that companies across the globe can now see what is most material to them by what has been threatened and affected most by COVID or COVID-19. If I shorten it too much, I'm going to miss out on the other, other COVIDs that were out there with different numbers, right? But now is the time for business and decision makers, researchers, and others to really think about how to reinvent supply chains, business models, and even company behavior and create a materiality map that will help outline what the future of a given company will look like when the, con- when the economy reopens and we come on into this post-COVID environment. So it was interesting. We got to see governments battling to figure out the right trade response to it. We saw over 50 companies were actually restricting the export of certain medical supplies just within what a month or two getting into this. The World Economic Forum actually started, you know, surveying supply chain professionals in the past to try to figure out what they viewed were going to be the biggest disruptions and most likely to provoke significant impacts on supply chain networks. And the list included pandemics, natural disasters, extreme weather, conflict, you know, <clears throat> breakdowns between countries, uh, export import restrictions or trade wars. And we've even seen that happening leading up to it. So it kind of compounded this <clears throat> global supply chain impact of this. Sorry about that. I'm trying to clear my throat. Um, But natural disasters, weather, and these types of things were something that we cannot control. And this was true of the pandemic also. But when they started looking at this and we started trying to learn from prior times when things like this happened, you know, governments and medical professionals, professionals, sorry, and logisticians responded to all this differently. But recommendations from the past were that we can improve international and interagency resilient standards and programs so we're better prepared for shocks to global supply chains. We can also ensure that supply chains are transparent in terms of their risks and assess, or this risk assessment is actually part of what procurement managers should be looking for, um, management and government processes also, because our governments are some of the largest consumers of goods around the world. I used to work at one time as a systems analyst for the Department of Defense, where people sat on a day-to-day basis and purchased millions and millions of dollars of stuff for all of our service agencies and our people around the world. Other things we've learned from the past is that we can improve 
visibility of network risks through information sharing, and we're getting so much better at this, and develop and standardize risk assessment and quantification tools for it, and realize that when we see hotspots or risks within supply chains and global environments, we should start taking action to help minimize this and not work solely on a low-cost approach to whatever it is we manufacture or ship and get to people around the world. And finally, we can improve risk communication both before and after disruptions. Instead of letting this go as we get through it and just looking ahead to the future, look back on what we learned while going through this pandemic and create a more balanced public and private sector discussion about it to then have more innovative ideas to kind of deal with or come out of the next one. So these are the types of things that hopefully are coming to the forefront for business managers and others to really think about how we've been dealing with this pandemic so far, how we're doing with it in terms of a business and its supply chain, and what would we do if this happened again in the next three or five years? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off oh well that was i was thinking a couple points when you were talking there um yeah we discussed last time that you know uh, pandemics are actually nothing new to to humankind um and this is just uh, another version of the 1918 flu a little bit or or some other ones and i hope that we we don't forget the lessons learned uh from this covid pandemic and um we can uh implement some changes and tools. What what toolbox do you have for people to locate, you know, problems in their supply chains for major disruptions like this? Because this is a big one. This is this yeah. is bigger than anything any of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. Oh absolutely. So interestingly enough, I think in this century we already when going into creating these books and this two volume set, we already saw two developments already happening in the context of supply chains. The first was the emergence of supply chains as strategic and a, and a tactical if you will, weapon for businesses to really focus in and hone in on. And if they've been overlooking this for too long and only focusing on other things like cost, then they're missing on the opportunity for them to differentiate and be strategic with their own supply chains and their business. But with the advent of you know the supply chain, it's important to recognize that we now have strategic objectives within the context that stresses not simply the internal operations of the firm, but also stakeholders to the supply chain. And those are you know the supply base, customers, logistics, linkages, relationships, transparency, visibility. And we realize that supply chain is no stronger than its weakest link. And I think that's something that's really been uncovered for some firms in this. So that's not really getting into the toolbox as much as, you know, one of the major epiphanies we had in trying to set up the context for why these books. The second one was, you know, the development of sustainability. That a paradigm shift is more than simply being environmental. And rather it's 
looking at overall sustainability and measures that are looking at waste reduction, improved profitability, not a trade-off in those things, generating strategic competitive advantage and recognizing emerging social issues while ensuring that it's safe and it treats its employees well as a business entity or enterprise. So in the past, sustainability was viewed as a, as a marketing fad. That's just no longer the case. Sustainability, and especially social sustainability, has been front and center with us because of COVID. And it's increasingly becoming, at a minimum, an expectation and a requirement for doing business, which is what's called an order qualifier, right? To look at and understand that under many conditions, this is something different for firms and what they have to deal with. So one of the things that we have in the toolbox, if you will, within <clears throat> within this is we get to short vignettes that help start each chapter to show existing companies are already doing this. So you're not recreating the wheel. Mar multinational companies that are well-known are usually used as um, opportunities to look a little bit deeper inside them in terms of what they're doing. So we think that helps better translate to relative management issues. So these are evidence-based management examples of leading companies, along with consulting companies that have already been doing this and spanning supply chains. References on top of this <clears throat> to help back it up and where any reader can go to find more information on emerging technology and practices and interdisciplinary perspectives enabling anyone to implement and manage a more sustainable supply chain in a project and change management basis. So this is our action learning approach to challenging readers to think differently about their supply chains. In terms of some of the tools that are available to them, a simple framework that we put into this started with um, some time I've been using this now over a decade in my own courses. It started off as something called the natural step. And it was started by Carl Henrik Robert in Sweden and expanded upon this by his um, partner, Johan Broman. And I was able to go on sabbatical and spend some time in Sweden with them and update some of my own thinking, some of my own writing, some other books that I'm involved with and some of my research and teaching. And what they have is a framework for strategic sustainable development. And that framework for strategic sustainable development <clears throat> is really looking at that same idea of we're transitioning to a more sustainable society. So how do we get there? And we get there through looking at things in a five level framework of understanding the context of the system, the business, the architect, the construction personnel, the engineers, whoever might be working in. Look at how success is defined within that industry and for that individual firm. So it's customized. And look at strategic guidelines for them in terms of how they already been strategic in the past and what does it mean for a new initiative to come out and be strategic and aligned with that. To then start getting at how do we find actions, something we can move on, something we can use as a catalyst for change. And then what tools do we back this up? And those tools our lifecycle assessment, um, International Organization of Standard Standards, so ISO standards, um, cradle to cradle thinking. <clears throat> I'm, you know, outside of a Pittsburgh city right now, where there are about six landfills within 25 miles of me, and it's cheaper for most firms to throw away things than it is for them to keep them and somehow tra transfer, hand them off to another company. So, in an industrial ecology context, that waste from one company should really become a raw material to another. And we can look at this and better understand it through ecological footprinting. This is another tool through looking at things like, you know, lead building systems um, for buildings. We can also go to passive house design. We can look at things like living buildings. So for all the buildings we have our offices in, for all the things we manufacture, all the things that are connected by roads, transportation system and information, that the buildings are an important piece of this too. 
And then we can start picking apart even how and where things are made. So through a life cycle assessment, I can actually, and in the past, I've taken my students through doing something like this for a paperclip with Gabi software out of Germany. And we can tell someone the 100-year global warming potential of a paperclip, a metal paperclip. And then think about this in terms of all the products we manufacture. Life cycle assessment can tell us from where these materials are extracted in the earth to how they're moved and the types of trucks that move them, the type of fuel that go into the trucks to where they go to a distribution center. Again, importance of another building being part of this supply chain network to then how they're transported again to someone who might do something to transform that raw material into something else like iron and iron ingots. Then to then manufacture and transfer that into some product. And from that product to be, again, taken probably by transportation to a distribution center, from there to a retail outlet or directly maybe to a customer in their home or their business. And along the way, we can now see life cycle assessment information that shows you and breaks apart all the environmental impacts from the extraction, from transportation, from manufacturing, and even from use. And one of the more interesting parts of this, it seems, is, you know, paper clips don't use electricity while you're using them, right? So they have a pretty benign impact in use. But we can even track how much, you know, off gases when we have to throw away things or use them. And if you think about laptop computers and the monitors and the webcams we're all using nowadays, right, during the pandemic, all these things have an impact. And that impact is much greater while they're in use because it consumes electricity while it's in use. And we can even track where that electricity comes from in the grid, what country they're in, the mix of things that go into it to tell you what the outputs are and the impacts on the environment from that. So the 100-year global warming potential for something is really its measure of carbon dioxide. And we can normalize these impacts on the environment to CO2 and use that with the social cost of carbon to then really start to think about why are we investing in old systems that are sometimes really wasteful? And then find answers to those questions that are much more innovative and can create systems that are much more effective and more efficient for us to connect and move products through in supply chains. Oh yeah, you talk about a paperclip. I was thinking about it. Just uh, I don't think I've bought one for years because, me personally, I always feel bad about throwing stuff away. I try to use things <laughs> at least a couple times, and I don't think I've bought paperclips for years because if I don't use it, I just put it back in my little box, and it has to be really bad before I'm gonna throw away a paperclip. So oh, yeah. that, that's a great example of you know just keep using it till it's just rusted and it's just yeah you just can't do it anymore. Yeah, I'm actually trying to hold up. And, you know, people can't see it, but they can hear it. But um, something yeah. that ever since my parents gave me, you can hear it rattling a little bit, to put paper clips inside of with a magnet on top to pull uh-huh. them and use them. And I've had that same container for those things for probably three decades or more already. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, paper clips are something I don't throw away. I can always find another use for them. And, and as we think about this, though, in terms of products, though, we can really think about what's the full impact of that product? And then why are we doing it in that way? Why are we manufacturing it in another country? Because what companies have been able to find from this, like um, if you look at Puma, they had an environmental profit and loss statement in the past. And others, we've done consulting work with um, a large industrial coatings company here. They're finding a tremendous amount of their impacts are in their supply chains. Even Walmart has found this with about 96% of their impact in their supply chains. Puma found about 94% of their impacts from their products, you know, things that are not plugged in and using electricity, right, are found in their supply chains. But yet we typically only look at the lowest cost to make something. And we typically ship everything over to China, then ship it back to wherever we are, and then distribute it to our outlets and our stores and our people. 
And instead, we could be making things much closer to dense populations within countries and not looking at just outsourcing our manufacturing and our pollution for that to one other country. So changes are coming because of life cycle assessment and a better understanding of all of our impacts globally from what we've been doing and how we've been doing this. Yes. And so well, let me jump a little bit. Now you have a two volume book here. Uh, why did you do two volumes for this topic? Hmm. Yeah, good question, right? Because there's so much information is the easy <laughs> response to this. Um, <clears throat> so we wanted to, and we actually did start this with a um, single edition volume. The publisher came back to us and said, you know, there's a lot of information in there. And the books that we typically do at Business Expert Press as 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 I've become an editor now with the same publisher of these two books, is that they're supposed to be short books for business professionals and sometimes short enough that you could read them on a cross-continent flight. And we knew that our first volume book was really kind of pushing the bounds of that. So our publisher came back and said, you know, we'd really like to see a two-volume set for this and, you know, move this into a space where you can actually then provide more information to readers, but in a two-piece um, volume. So volume one really focuses on foundations and volume two is on implementation. So in this two volume set that it's intended to be a standalone read for professionals, um, a resource for executive education, maybe even a supplementary text for MBA programs and supply chain management as we use it here in our own program. So in volume one, we really introduced the topic of what is sustainable supply chain management and review strategic elements of sustainability along with integration opportunities and case studies. And then, you know, review ways in which SSCM, if I want to shorten this, to, for sustainable supply chain management, actually enhance value and create competitive advantage. Helps with waste reduction. Most people go to first thing, right? And this doesn't have to be a trade-off. And we can look at trends involving transparency and what's happening, like the life cycle assessment information I was just talking about as an important deep dive is taken into performance metrics, models, reviewing applicable standards for this. <clears throat> and finally, in volume one, we review supply chain management tools and sustainability as we conclude the final chapter in that book. And if a reader goes to the second volume, it's an evidence-based management approach to sustainability and value chains to allow an understanding from a variety of disciplines and professional backgrounds so if you're a business professional wanting to you know, look at a couple hour engagement with this, we could suggest just skimming and going through a couple of chapters. But the second volume is really looking at implementation, the human element, change management, and opportunities for us to think about how we would do this within our own organizations and start a project to do so. Well, that's a really smart move on your editor to make it uh, a book you can read going transcontinental one way and read the second half the other way. But we have to have our airplanes flying again. <laughs> yeah, well, we do and we don't, right? In some ways, we we are, oh, I can't even think of how many things I've already not or had to not go to because it's been rescheduled all the way out through the end of the year. I typically do carbon offsets for my travel also to help offset the impacts from, from those types of things when I'm on planes because I do quite a bit of international travel also. But yeah, there's whew, there's been so much happening and forcing us into Zoom meetings, Skype, FaceTime, and, and other things that I think it's really going to impact some of the outcomes of this in this post-pandemic environment, that supply chains won't be what they were in the past, and it's going to be limiting some aspects of travel because we just don't have to spend that much money. I spend you know, thousands of dollars sometimes to get to other places, spend a few nights there for a conference and be able to come home. 
And now a lot of my conferences are going virtual. And for a couple hundred dollar fee to get into the conference, I can now be in there in this virtual environment with four or 6,000 other people around the world. And sometimes some of our PhD students or other graduate students couldn't afford to do things like this. So, yeah, we're going to experience a, a bit of change in terms of transportation. <laughs> well, that makes you a good question. Okay, now you talk about all this sustainability, et cetera. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't prepare you for this question. It's just off the cuff. So how do you practice what you preach um, in your program and at your house? <laughs> all right. So ironically, I was just tasked yesterday with trying to get a, a deadline in for something like uh, writing about something like this yesterday for a book chapter on personal sustainability. So in terms of what I try to do to walk the talk. So I, um, I moved from Boston to Pittsburgh about 12 years ago or so and came into an environment where it was a relatively good housing market. We found a house that was already um, built, though, so we couldn't have any decision inputs into it. It was about a year old. We got into it, and then I immediately started thinking about it in terms of how do I bring this down in terms of its consumption and make it more sustainable. I was taking a chaired position in a sustainability program, developing sustainability courses, and I wanted to look for examples of how I could do this myself. Um, I reached out to the Green Building Alliance in Pittsburgh, which was one of the first um, USGBC chapters. It's the United States Green Building Council, as I'm sure your listeners are familiar with from the architectural side of things. I then got involved with their board, so I ended up being on, the, on their board and started doing consulting projects with my students with them purposely to have students look at buildings and the built environment. I took a lot of the learning that was taking place over multiple years and tried to make that happen in my own home, bringing down my consumption in a home. Again, we we're coming from Boston to Pittsburgh, so the, the market was a bit different. But our home is 150% larger than the average home in Pennsylvania. But in this space, we now, through a bunch of passive techniques, have taken down our consumption to consuming less than half the energy of a regular home in the state of Pennsylvania and 30% less water. Uh, we then looked at some active solutions to this afterwards, but uh, mostly you know, energy star types of appliances and things to put in whatever systems you connect. Before I finally went to a third phase, which was then putting renewables on the home. So that way I could be coming to you today from a net positive home where I generate more than I need for the home itself. I do it at 40% cheaper than my utility company. I offload two extra megawatts a year for a car so I can connect the transportation piece to this, right? And then um, think about driving that car, which in cost perspectives, an e-vehicle is 90% less costly than driving a combustion engine vehicle. So I can do this for about a penny per mile. And then combustion engine vehicles are more like 10 cents per mile. And that's part of a disruptive technology is that it's 90% cheaper to drive like that, can be just as safe and um, less impacts on the environment. So I tried to create a home with four of us in it. I've got two daughters and also use it as an example for them for learning. I've done the same things with area schools here. Um, we we're trying to put more renewables on schools after going through both passive and active approaches to bring down consumption within those or within those buildings. So we've done consulting projects now with um, school districts, with city buildings. I think we've got over 80 or 90 of them in our county that we can actually look at doing this for rooftop solar later on. I've been involved with a lot of um, companies that do wind now, solar in the area, a number of installers for it, and others creating projects and templates even for how we can do this within the city and look at our impact. So we're trying to move the city now to 100% renewables um, within a certain time frame, 2030, and also e-vehicle fleets. And this is Pennsylvania, right, where we've got a lot of cloudy days. 
So I tried to take buildings as a learning opportunity for my daughters, for myself, for my students, and for other business leaders that are doing best practices and have buildings be a part of what we can do to rethink our future and have it to be a more sustainable part of our society. Oh, yeah, that would be a great place to uh, give tours for your students, architecture, everybody. Yeah, well, we get out on site. I love getting out on site with students and architects. We've done multiple projects with architects and actually trying to better understand the value proposition around sustainability within the built environment. And what we do, even with our own our business school called Rockwell Hall at Pittsburgh and Duquesne University, we have um, monitors and sensors now within the building, dashboards. We can show you real-time building performance and then actually show for every dollar invested in the building in financial returns, environmental returns, and social returns on the dollar. We're finding that the social returns are 10 times better than the financials. I can do the same thing in my house. So I can now have my solar system connected to my HVAC system. I can control it from my phone when I'm away. I can blow out the home if my air quality isn't very good inside the house because I have air quality sensors inside it. And actually look at my air quality inside versus outside because sometimes outside here, it's two to three times worse outside our buildings and our homes. So I love how supply chains connect us globally and how buildings are an intricate part of that and how all this can come together to create a better, more sustainable future for us. Oh, well, supply chains. Well, that sounds like a good, another good question here. So where are these types of supply chains taking us into the future? Oh, well, I'm not going to jump out uh, right off the ledge into the flying us around stuff yet, but um, there's a lot of change coming. Um, if we think about what I said earlier, we don't have to manufacture everything in China and focus on only low cost. We can have distributed manufacturing systems closer to dense populations, closer to our homes. We can have automated systems and automated order fulfillment. You know, when your refrigerator is getting low, it can also start accumulating data for you. You have groceries delivered on time with the things you need versus the things you might want because you're hungry when you're walking through the store. So better connected systems, even within the home to other systems and transportation systems that enabling the movement of goods to you. Um, environmental and social performance measurement actually traced throughout supply chains that travel along with the product and are captured by things like blockchain and technology behind this in terms of AI and the Internet of Things also enabling all these connected devices within our homes. Then better mass transit and movement of people with less impacts on the environment while doing it. I've already mentioned some of the benefits of e-vehicles when doing it. When I was in Sweden in 2016, they'd already set up electric roadways for semi-vehicles there to transport things because they knew it was cheaper and had less impact on the environment. More autonomous driving is coming. So we'll have autonomous driving where 94% of our time, our cars just sit there. Instead, in the future, we could lease them out to others for mobility, and we might have autonomous vehicles constantly moving or circling around dense populations and enabling the movement of people instead of sitting in those parking lots we also discussed earlier. So autonomous vehicles could take over and do that and help with food distribution, change those parking lots into just drive up spots where food and prepared food is loaded into them. And then it comes to your home or your business even and offloads for you there. So it's better farm to table enabling of that food chain that in the past, again, we waste 40% of and it travels 1500 miles. So we'll probably see in a funny way, maybe the clutch go away. <laughs> Autonomous vehicles and people driving with automatic transmissions are already taking over. Um, clutched vehicles are on, on their way out. We'll probably see drones. Even here in Pittsburgh, we have light systems. I think we put up with something like 1,800 light poles that include Wi-Fi, sound enable, um, some with um, air quality monitors, 
and it actually creates a three-dimensional Wi-Fi space over the city. And we can think about how we're going to be moving things in a three-dimensional space, not just two-dimensionally or along roads. Uh, we've got some friends that live in Delaware next to a Amazon distribution center, and one of the executives lives close to them. And they say on a weekly basis, they can see drones coming to his house and dropping packages by his front door. Not dropping them, hopefully out of the air, but at least setting them down by his front door. So drones are already taking place. Autonomous vehicles, we have autonomous semis already around us in all of our highways in the United States. People just don't know it yet. But that's already there with a real driver just sitting behind the wheel, but they don't have to do anything. Even downtown Pittsburgh, you can hail a cab here. And maybe one out of five cabs is an autonomous cab. I think over a billion dollars has been invested here in autonomous driving by the automotive industry to try to figure this out. So you can almost always hail or see a cab downtown that's um, an autonomous one. And again, this is already happening. Most people just don't see it because it doesn't look any different inside the windshields or those vehicles around us until we see one that's actually empty. Part of what I talked about before is the use of lifecycle assessment and that information going into new product development so we, we can source, make, move, and use products that have less impacts on the environment and are hopefully being done within buildings that are much healthier for people in an environment in the future that, again, will be more sustainable than the one we currently have. Well, I like that, but I have a little devil's advocate question. So well, I kind of miss going out shopping at stores. Can I Can I go back out shopping again? I, I don't like staying at home all the time. Yeah, I think we're still going to be able to do that. Um, <laughs> I don't want to go the tough part of that is the three-dimensional element, right? But there are, ironically, already body scanning systems and things you can use with smartphones and other devices, where if you stand in front of it, it tells you what size you are, basically. And then you can just cut, you know, pick and choose, I should say, um, the garment on you in a virtual environment to see what things look like. And yeah, that's going to morph too, but there's always going to be, I think, a need for something tangible. Even, you know, you're doing a podcast for books. I sometimes have the toughest time reading a book electronically, my laptop or my phone, especially. Oof. Um, but I can't replace the feel of having one in my hands and flipping a page and thinking about that. And at times also writing my notes down about it or whatever. So we're going to need to experience things that we can touch and feel. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime too soon. But there are others that are going to enable this other environment where it can be more virtual and those clothes. Are you already, we already see service providers for this, right? You get a new set of clothes every three months and your clothes can be repurposed with somebody else's as we already have opportunities for this stuff to not be thrown away, but just repurposed, reused and used hopefully over and over and over again, not thrown in landfills. Well, that's true. I, I mean, I would never th- throw out a book or anything like that. There's so many places to reuse books and yeah. Um, I do these podcasts. Yeah. One of my requ- one requirements is that we have to get a real book. I, um, you know, I can read online. I, I read too much probably on the internet, but I still, I still, you still want to touch, you know, it's part of the human experience. You you want to touch things. That's why they have it stores, you know, I guess it's getting a little <laughs> off topic. You know, if you break it, if you touch it, you break it, you buy it. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm, you know, I'm sitting here in a room with books kind of all around me and same thing in my office. I have a love of books and there's this really, you know, probably deep embedded synapse that fires right in my brain somehow when I have something in my hands like that. And then the information and the knowledge that I can glean from that helps those synapses to hopefully, hopefully to remain resilient. But um, yeah, I completely appreciate what you're doing. And thanks for having me on, Tricia, and the New Books Network in terms of interviews like this and trying to disseminate information about important topics. Because I really think that we need to hit people from all different kind of spectrums or mediums in, in doing this. 
And if I wait for someone just to get to one of my books on the shelf somewhere, it's not going to have as much impact as it would otherwise with people like yourselves and NBN providing these opportunities for others to learn from this. Oh, absolutely. And I agree. I mean, you know, this is just a, an update on, on, on radio, just turn on the radio. It's uh, yeah. now we can have all kinds of radio shows uh, available, podcast radio shows. Um, again, you know, Robert, thank you for being on the show again. It's, it's always a pleasure to have you here. And uh, uh, my final question is, so what is your next project? What are you working on now? Oh, uh, the next project could, always, my answer to that could always be my daughters, right? They're, um, they're just on the, the oldest is just on the verge of going into high school. The youngest is looking at middle school in another year or so. But I think they're my projects always. The real projects in terms of research and what I'm doing, um, sustainable, and then insert, you know, there's a lot of things that interest me right now. I've got projects in six different countries with people around the world. High performance buildings are definitely that. Um, I just wrote a piece on, and I'm waiting to hear back from a publisher on building-based learning or BBL and how to better engage students, especially business students with the buildings that are around them so that they can actually understand when they look at them, they can see opportunities for change and for improvement and that they will know in advance for every dollar they invest in that building, they'll get a financial, environmental and social return on that. So I like thinking about how we're going to change in the future. COVID and other things have forced us into buildings a little bit more so than I think we've been in the past, but we still spend over 93% of our time inside buildings. And I hope business students in the future can look at buildings as an opportunity for change and a way for us to ground sustainability and tangible metrics and make buildings better. Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, Robert, uh, thank you for being here and uh, I'll let our audience know. I guess I need to tell who, their, who your publisher is too. It's uh, mm -hmm. This is Robert Schroff, and his co-author is Stephen Melnick. The book is Developing Sustainable Supply Chains to Drive Value, uh, Volumes 1 and 2, published by Business Expert Press in 2017. And I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.